Good morning. Last uh, Sunday, we were together and we were looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, as we uh, consider, will you marry me? I hope you got a chance to to hear me speak on that. Each of these messages kind of builds on the other. So I can't go back and do all of that before I do what I want to say this morning. But I hope that if you haven't heard that, you'll get a, an opportunity, take an opportunity to do that. I want to read to you again Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, and then what, what I want to share with you will be building on last Sunday's message and uh, this passage again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her or make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This shows us how much Jesus loves the church, how indissoluble the oneness between loving Christ and loving his church really is. How profound is the mystery? If you ask me why we should love and care about the church, Jesus does. That's why. And that's why we love her, the church, the way Jesus loves her. You and I, 
are to love his bride, his body, his household. In fact, if we were to do otherwise, the bride of Christ would be to us just a casual date. If otherwise, the body of Christ, just a thing and not his people. Otherwise, the household of God is just a house and not our family. These are images that are used of us, the church, of a rich relationship, of a community, of a new society known as the church. You've got your New Testament open. Turn to chapter 2, and let's look at verses 19 through 22. Ye, he says, <laughs> well, he doesn't use ye. That's old English. But when you say ye, you think of more than one. And when you read you, sometimes you think of the singular. So I want us to know that he's speaking to a crowd of people, if you will, a passel of people. He's talking to the church more than just an individual. Ye, you are members of God's household, he says. And then in verse 20, he says, erected, erected, that is, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which, by the way, in chapter 4, verse 11, he starts with the apostles and prophets as he begins to talk about the church in the balance of that chapter. So when he says apostles and prophets, he's not talking about the Old Testament prophets. He's talking about those spokesmen to the church, those gifted people who expressed the word of the Lord to his church. And so upon the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, Back in uh, 2005, I got the opportunity of what for me was a lifetime because we traveled to Ecuador to work at the Happiness Foundation, which is a very large orphanage sitting on 50 acres, and we were building a structure there, and only the foundation was laid. Now, it was very exciting for me because I had never... I mean, I didn't fly on a plane until I was 20, and I'd never been outside the country. I got a passport and everything, you know. It's like I'm legit. But um, the maestro laid the cornerstone, and that took him a long time. Everything we built was based and measured on the cornerstone. And when... Paul writes here that Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. That's important. Everything is aligned. Everything is fitted and related to that cornerstone. And that's the way the church is built. 
And then he says in verse 21, in him, the entire edifice is fitted together. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? It amounts to, that is, it adds up to, can't you picture it being built on this foundation with the cornerstone set, every part, every stone, every fashion-shaped stone being fitted in and being built up, amounting to, what does he say here, a holy temple unto the Lord. And then he says in verse 22, and in him ye too. So that's all of us. Can you hear it? I mean, he's speaking to you and me. You, 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 all of ye too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit, by his Spirit. When I traveled in Israel, or even in Ecuador, when you see, if you will, a cinder block sitting off aside the structure by itself, or a stone, a masoned stone, standing there, lying there by itself, it seems out of place. That's not the way you and I are to be. We're a part of this. We can't step back and eye it as though we're not a part of it, that we're not those who belong to it, that our place isn't there in the midst of it. The other night I splurged. I I used to eat McDonald's all the time. Um, I think I was in junior high, you know, what's that, 12, 13? when uh, McDonald's franchises first came to my city. And I think you could get one for 19 cents at the time, you know, a burger and then a soda and a French fry. I don't think it was 39, even 30 cents. Uh, Amazing. And uh, I became, well, I just, I'm sorry, please don't think less of me or more of me as the case may be, but I love McDonald's. But I don't eat McDonald's anymore because I'm, at that age where I can't handle it. (laughs) But the other night, um, my son was coming over and he called and asked if I wanted him to get me something and I just had this hankering and I had McDonald's and it tasted just the way I remembered it. (laughs) I loved it. I splurged. Went down sweet. But the thing is, is it tasted just the way I remembered it. It's always the same. It's a known quantity. It has a certain character. That's, if you will, the the essence of a franchise. A Starbucks here is the same, offers the same quality, has the same presentation. It means the same thing, whether it's in Seattle or Visalia, whether it's close to its origin or far away. And that's the way the church is to be. Forgive the association with McDonald's. Because of the cornerstone because of Jesus Christ, 
we, uh, we had our small group on Tuesday night. We had such a great discussion about, you know, the, the passage last, that we looked at and discussed last week. And someone suggested that we change the name of Grace Community Church. I don't know what you feel about that. But I thought, that's brilliant. Because when you think about it, Grace Community Church, Grace Community Community, Grace Church Church. Church is not a building, it's a community. Church is a people. It's the body of Christ. If it is in any way associated to the structure, such as the holy temple as it is here, it's because it's erected with people. It's built with you and me, fitted together to be something glorious. Something glorious. Something glorious. Last week we looked at uh, a couple of verses in chapter 3. I'd like to look at them just for a moment again. Verse 9, 10, and 11. And please be reading Ephesians. I've, I've been reading Ephesians all the way through at a sweep. You have to just immerse yourself in this letter. You realize when you read a letter, you don't just read a sentence and then quit You don't just read a sentence and then commit it to memory and just carry that sentence around with you all the time. You read it from beginning to end. And sometimes you read it more than once, especially if it bears precious messages. That's what this is. It's a precious message. Look at what he says in verses 9, 10, and 11 again. He's uh, talking about This revelation to bring to light for everyone, verse 9, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. In other words, in the secret counsel of his own wisdom, this plan has been there all the time. In fact, in one place, he, Paul says, before the creation of the world. In, order, in other words, the creation of the world is a part of this plan. This just doesn't happen, you know. It's like, oh, wow, you know, kismet. Uh, well, what a good thing that just popped up there. No, this is all a poor part of what God has ordered. And then he says, Got to find my place again. Hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church. (laughs) I mean, is that not amazing? Doesn't that just kind of blow your mind a little bit? Just a, a, you know, at least a fuse popped. Through the church. Maybe that other church, maybe that church that I see represented on television, maybe that church I've heard so many people talk about, but this church, the one, the one we comprise, this expression of that community that 
God wanted to create? And then what did he say? What does he say? So that through it, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Jesus Christ. In other words, he said, Jesus, it's all up to you. Jesus, it's up to you. And that's exactly what he says in the first chapter in verses 9 and 10. And he's saying it again in different words right here. Jesus, it's up to you to create this people, this community, this church. Not a building, a people. And then let's look at verse 20 and 21. So maybe you've just blown a fuse, but wait until you read this. Now, to him, who's him? God. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Within us. Mark that. Now get this, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Mind blown. I know, maybe yours isn't, but mine was. I've read, I've read that, I've read that, I've read that, and I thought, wow, glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. And then he says, Christ Jesus. Talk about the indissoluble oneness. I would hope that when people think of me, they think of Shelley. And when people think of Shelley, they think of me. Because there is an indissoluble oneness. And Paul can say, even before he mentions Jesus Christ, because it's up to him that this all happens. It's up to him and because of him and through him that you and I are here this morning listening with our hearts. And he can say to God, be glory in the church. There are people, when I was on a, back in the old days of the internet, we had a list service, um, and I, this was H. Judaica, and it was fascinating to me because I have a fascination with Jewish studies and rabbinics, and this was for that purpose. And so there were Orthodox and all variety of, of Jewish backgrounds represented. Whenever they write the name God, they write G underline D because it's a sign of piety and reverence. It's, it's kind of a way of, just as in Jesus' day, they would sometimes substitute heaven for God. 
kingdom of heaven as a sign of reverence. And often if they mention his name, they'll say, blessed be he, blessed be he. They, they're trying to show honor and respect from the depths of their hearts in every little thing they do when it comes to God. We could learn something. Paul says, blessed be he, glory to him in the church and Christ Jesus. Not just by accident, but forever and ever. Mind blown. I was uh, talking with a pastor, a friend of mine who I first met as a student, and now he has for many years been pastoring in San Diego. He's been going through a really hard time. Sometimes people are mean to pastors. I know that amazes you, but it happens. And uh, he's under a lot of fire. I won't go into the details, but it's largely undeserved. Anyway, he sent me something to lighten my day, and I wrote back and asked how he was doing, and one thing led to another. We had an exchange of emails, and I urged him to read Ephesians. And I said, I said, Greg, read from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 3, if not the whole epistle, but meditate on the sweep of chapters 1, 2, and 3 that ends in this benediction we just read. I told him to hold between his lips the word church as he read. Can you picture that? You know, you might write uh, the word church on a piece of paper And then hold it in your mouth as you read chapters 1, 2, 3. Because I wanted him to think about what Paul is talking about. That he pastors, that he's a part of. Because every pastor doesn't sit above the church. He is a part of the church. I'm just like you. I'm in this just the way you are. Maybe a little more involved. But not much, or I shouldn't be. I don't have some special authority. I have a role and a responsibility, and you have a role and a responsibility too. My role and responsibility is to be pastor, but it doesn't make me any different, better, or unusual than you. I have to be in his word. I have to let his thoughts influence my thoughts, just like you. So I told him to hold it in his lips. This is what he wrote me. I got it, just found it this morning, and I put it in the message. Dear John, I appreciate so very much your reminder, your encouragement to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 3, 21. I'm especially encouraged in the reminder that we are chosen by God, our Heavenly Father, that our inheritance of the kingdom is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us, not because of our goodness or holiness, but in reality, despite our lack of such things. As I hold the word church between my lips, I also must confess that this includes those whom I believe were wrong, who've wronged me. 
From a worldly point of view, I want, I want my pound of flesh. But I must trust God to work out this situation for good, even if I cannot see it now with my natural eyes. But with the eyes of faith, however, I know that I, I know that we can get beyond this horrible ideal, ordeal. I'm proud to call you my brother. Love, Greg. How does Jesus love the church? It's a covenant love. It's a faithful love. It's a kindred love. It's a covenant love. It's a faithful love. It's a kindred love. Covenant love. Faithful love. Kindred love. And I want to talk about that for just a brief moment. And that's funny because that's about five pages here. Jesus loves his church with unconditional love, covenant love. There is a difference. I was so grateful that uh, Brian talked a little bit about the difference between covenant and contract. Let me just give you a few contrasts. You might want to jot these down for reflection. A contract is a deal, a deal between parties. A covenant is a commitment involving the parties themselves. A contract is rooted in distrust. We need a contract because I just want to hold you to it, you know? We can't just have a handshake. I can't just give you my word. I need something that'll stand up in court, that'll back me up because I'm not sure you'll follow through. Or maybe you'll blow it, and that'll cost me. But a covenant, covenants are grounded in trust. Contracts are about what you can get from another Covenants are about what you pledge to give of yourselves to another. Contracts sound like this. If you will, I will. That's because contracts are quid pro quo, something for something. But covenants involve our lives, not just something Covenants sound different. Covenants sound like this. If you won't, I still will. Contracts are based on performance. Covenants are based on relationship. I don't know if you've been following the talks having to do with Iran's nuclear program. They've been in Geneva, a hastily called meeting of the heads of state of the major countries in this world. It should concern you. On the NBC Evening News Friday night, this is what I heard. This was taking place in Geneva. And then there was a, a clip of Benjamin Netanyahu, 
who's the prime minister of Israel. And this is what he said. He said, Iran got the deal of a century and the international community got a bad deal, a very bad deal. And then Ann Curry, the correspondent for NBC, said this, and I quote, President Obama insists any deal with Iran will be subject to verification. And then they showed a clip from the previous evening. And a part of what President Obama said to the interviewer. And this is what he said, and I'm so thankful for the TiVo kind of quality because I can go back and actually get the exact words. He said, we don't have to trust them. What we have to do is make sure there is a good deal in place from the perspective of verifying what they're doing. That's a contract. That's the contractual kind of life that we know and live in in this world. He didn't qualify this by saying, now this is just, you know, the way we talk in a small part of the world. Everybody understands what he's talking about. But this is not covenant living. And God enters into covenants, not contracts. Harriet, Harriet Gray, sent me a a video link this week about a couple, Ian and Larissa. And they were going to get married. And what a beautiful couple. couple. There were pictures of, of Ian and Marissa, you know, in the early days of their courtship. And Ian was working for his father on the way home. He got into a car accident and suffered severe brain damage. He's not the same. He's different. And Marissa married him anyway. She looks like a model that ought to be on Vogue. And I mention that because we're so visually geared. And it it, it does blow your mind that she would marry Ian. And it comes out even in the comments section. People just can't think that this marriage is right, that that she should marry him and that they should love each other. And a woman from the United Kingdom, which is amazing to me in this world in which we live, she commented, and this is what she wrote. She said, marriage is not a contract. Ian is neither a good nor a service. He's a human being that's no less deserving of Larissa's unconditional love than you are deserving of God's. What if he had had the accident after the wedding? Some would think it's grounds for divorce, but the marriage covenant is the decision, the commitment to love another through thick and thin, like the covenant God makes 
It's not a contract like a deal struck for goods and services. Frederick Beekner, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, wrote this about marriage in his book, Whistling in the Dark, page 78, and I can just excerpt it only. He says, after be- and this is after beautifully portraying a covenant marriage in which each gives up everything for the other, he writes, the question is, what do they get in return? That's a contract. That's the way we're wired by our culture and our society. What do I get in return? He says, they get each other in return. That's a covenant. They never have to face the world quite alone again. But a marriage made in heaven is one where a man and a woman become more richly themselves together than the chances are either of them could ever have managed to become alone. When Jesus changed the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, perhaps it was a way of saying more or less the same thing. In covenant, in marriage, you get each other but you become something you never are apart. And that is true of Jesus and his church. It's true of you and me. We get each other. And maybe you're not too excited about that. But if you look at each other and you see each other as God sees you and you just don't see what they are right now, which you cannot see clearly anyway, and you begin to see them as who they are becoming, then you realize that that bride of Jesus Christ with spot and wrinkle is the the bride that he said, I'm setting you apart to myself with spot and wrinkle, because I'm going to present you to myself, radiant, glorious, beautiful. That's what we are to be and realize we are and what we are becoming in Christ. That love is faithful too. And it's also family. It's faithful, not fickle. We are fickle. Human beings are fickle. Do you like the word fickle? I like saying the word fickle. (laughs) When I come into church, when I visit another church, And that's a strange saying in and of itself, come into church, (laughs) come into the fellowship, you know, of the body of Christ when they gather together to honor and worship the Lord. I have to turn off my critical faculties. There are people I look up to, but I have a PhD in New Testament studies. I've been in ministry 40 years. And when I walk in and I listen to the sermon, I can find a lot wrong with it. 
I can find a lot wrong with what people are doing if I don't see his church the way he sees it. If I don't love his church the way he loves it. There's a lot that we don't see going on each and every week. Jeff, thank you for the beautiful lighting. He was here till 3 a.m. And this isn't, what not just today, this week. Why does he do that? We aren't paying him to do that. He's doing it because he loves Jesus Christ and his church. He loves you. He wants to adorn what God is doing. He wants to magnify some of the things that we plan on doing. When I look at a person that I've known for a long time, and I'm looking at some of those people right now, I don't see you as a, as a stranger sees you. When a stranger sees some of my friends here today, they just see an old person. They see somebody that is irrelevant to them or by the world's standards. I don't see that at all. I don't even see an old person. I see that vivacious spirit. I see the history of that person's life. That person is not just a a two-dimensional flat piece of paper. I see all the things that they've done. I've seen some of those old people. I see guys who scaled mountains or driven a bike for 50 or 100 miles at at a whack. You don't see the church the way Jesus sees it. And I don't either sometimes. But that's what Paul's saying we ought to be seeing. Seeing it the way he sees it. Seeing his bride. Seeing his beloved. Seeing that which was hatched in the very heart of God before the creation of the world. Seeing that which God wants to take glory in. Because he says, it's beautiful to me and it's like nothing in the world. And it's going to become something that you can't even imagine. And it's becoming something like that even now. And it's kindred. I can't, you know, if I had notched my belt every time one of my kids said, I hate you. But we stick together because it's a covenant. It's a covenant. We don't say, get that kid out of here. We don't say, well, forget that. I just am not going to take that from you. You know what I said? And I had to think about it. I had to think about how the Lord would respond. I said, well, I love you. And that's covenant love. And you know what? If we stick together long enough, all those little peeves, all those little, I hate you, we'll live long enough to see something beautiful, more beautiful, and we'll see that child, that friend, that brother, that sister come around and say, I love you. Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, 
your heart is pumping in our hearts. Sometimes we don't take our pulse. But you are coursing through us and you won't quit. You want to revive us, flush us with color and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We want that to be our prayer too. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.